This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt Shawley, bringing the best of my times radio show don't forget you can listen monday to friday 10 till 1 and on Friday's show, uh, this week, we are looking at the energy price cap. But we try to answer some of your questions. So if you've got questions about how the cap works, what you should do, should you try and fix or switch? If you've just got concerns about how you're going to cope and you want to know what help might be available, we're getting the Times Many Mentor team in to try and answer your questions. So if you want to come on and put your questions to them email me matt.chorley at times.radio matt.chorley at times.radio and we can get you on on Friday and then you'll be able to hear uh, yourself back on the podcast uh, later on uh, on Friday as well. Right, coming up on today's episode uh, I've got an amazing interview with Shabnam Khan Dewan. She's basically Afghanistan's answer to Hugh Edwards. Read the news every night at 7 and 10 o'clock. She was on air the night before Kabul fell to the Taliban she was then told she couldn't work. Uh, she's had her family threatened. She managed to make it to the UK. She's been in the UK for the last year. She's learned English. Amazing uh, how quickly she's managed to learn English. Uh, she kept quiet for a long time because the Taliban said that they would, uh, otherwise they'd attack her family. They've attacked her family anyway, so she decided to speak out. Extraordinary interview with Shabnam coming up on the podcast. Before that, though, it's time for this. The Colonists with Night at the Marriott. India Knight and James Marriott on Times Radio. Yeah, it's that time of the morning where we speak to our two favourite colours on a Thursday morning night at the Marriott. It, uh, India Knight is here. How are you, India? I'm furious because we've got no rain either. You haven't got any rain? Well, the good news for you, India, is you're not sitting on the new chairs. James... The new chairs sound terrible. I hear you've been sabotaging them. James has had to uh, climb aboard one. Yeah, I, I, the chair I sat in this morning was in, was incredibly high, and I felt like a baby. I felt like someone had, someone should have put me in it, <laughs> and then spoon fed me pasta or something. If you'd have asked, I'd have lifted you up in it. Well, I thought you, I'm, I thought you were just gonna. I didn't think I had to ask. Um, um, I will next time. I did film uh, James getting in the chair, so I'll post that on Twitter. It's very dignified. Basically, basically, they've installed some new chairs in the studio, and everybody hates them. Although apparently, Carol Walker likes them. What's the purpose of the new chairs? They've got special coasters on the on the wheels, on the on the on the legs, so you can move them sideways when you're not sitting it. When you sit in it, it sticks you to the ground, which is supposed Ooh. to stop us jigging about in front of the cameras because obviously we're a TV oh. channel, not a radio station. Uh, but you, it also means you can't scooch your legs under the desk. Yeah, it's got a bit of 
bit of dancing around it's so adds it's to the adds to the atmosphere, doesn't it? I think so. I think so. So anyway, there's a revolt happening. <laughs> Just you wait. Once Mariella gets in here, all hell's going to break loose. That's what I'm most looking forward to. Uh, right, uh, let's get on and uh, talk about some important things. Now, there's this story, uh, Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak's giving a, uh, an interview to uh, the Telegraph. No, not the Telegraph, the Spectator. Where he has said the government was wrong to scare people about coronavirus and it should not have empowered, in his words, the scientific advisors. He said if he'd been Prime Minister during the pandemic, he would have had a more grown-up conversation about the economic downsides of lockdowns. Obviously, to the delight of Fraser Nelson, who's the editor of The Spectator, who's, or I think we could probably call him a lockdown sceptic. Um, India, reading this and, and sort of thinking about this, it, it just made me think, are we heading for lockdown being a bit like the Iraq war? That, that eventually no one will be able to remember that they mm. supported it. It's like, no, 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 mm. I, know, I, I definitely thought it was a bad idea at the time, despite the fact we wish you should have went on the telly every night and told people exactly to, you know, stay at home, protect the NHS. Yes, I mean, the lockdown had, lockdowns there had uh, massive, massive public support. And even after um, free movement of persons was reintroduced, lots of people cautiously kind of existed in a state of semi-lockdown anyway. I mean, I get his point. I mean, it's, it's politics. It's a trade-off. You've got to trade what the scientists are telling you against the practicalities of people's daily lives. But I think protesting quite so vociferously after the event doesn't make him look great. You know, yeah. if he really did feel so passionately about it, why didn't he stand his corner? You know, it, it sounds like he sort of had many tantrums about it and then everybody ignored him and then they did what Boris Johnson wanted to do or the rest of the cabinet wanted to do and he was just sort of left dangling. It, just, it doesn't cast him in a very favourable light, I don't think. And also, mm, yeah. No, 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 it's it. fine. Also, James, it made me think, well, why didn't he, if he thought it was that bad, he could have resigned. Yeah, that is the question yeah. that it seems to beg, doesn't it? Especially because it's not, you know, he's not sort of come out and said, oh, you know, well, I was a bit uneasy about it. But it really seems like he thought it was the wrong thing to do and cost us tons of money. And yeah, if it was if it was that big a deal, I mean, even even if not resigning, kicking up, you know, breaking breaking ranks with the government line and kicking up a bit of a fuss and just letting people know there was, you know, there was a dissenting voice in the government, if he felt that strongly about it. But I, th I think you're right. I think from this distance in time, I think I certainly remember lockdown as mostly a kind of boring thing. And I think we're maybe, we've maybe kind of lost the headspace of how frightening and terrifying yeah. and the mm. massive public consensus, which, as people have been pointing out, the polling at the time indicated, I think it was more than 90% of people supporting lockdowns. And maybe with hindsight, everyone, as you say, everyone's kind of forgotten how scared everyone was and how completely behind lockdowns, like, so many people seem to be. Yeah, and I suppose that, that's the thing, isn't it, um, India, is that, that now in the, with the, the benefit of hindsight and timing, it's difficult to remember the difference between the different lockdowns and, the uh, you know, that very first one, when people, there's talk now, well, why didn't they do a cost-benefit analysis? So we thought the NHS was about to fall over. Yeah, yeah. We could see properly... what was happening in India. Uh, not in India, in Italy. Alarming. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah hindsight, is a, hindsight is a wonderful thing. Yeah. I mean, also, there were slightly weird things sort of uh, strategically for Rishi Sunak, because he's been basically playing the I got the country through the terrible pandemic yes. look at all the support I gave you, rather than, well, I thought it was a stupid idea. I don't know why we were <laughs> yeah. doing it. Yeah, exactly. There's this thing you all loved me really for, actually. Lovely. I take it all back. Um, it was interesting, though, because I was reading that, uh, you know, these comments weren't necessarily planned and they just seemed to have allegedly, you know, popped up in this interview of The Spectator. Um, and I guess it might add credence to the, what was he called, a sort of uh, wounded stoat, an angry stoat effect that he's just sort of like 
you know, pulling down anything that yeah, will, yeah, yeah, any, yeah. anything to hand that he can grab and just shake and see what around. happens. Thrashing, a thrashing stoat. Oh, in fact, this is interesting. Literally, uh, Lee Kane, who was the director of communications number 10, very rarely ventures out into public. He's tweeted saying, huge admirer of Rishi Sunak, but his position on lockdown is simply wrong. It would have been morally irresponsible for the government not to implement lockdown in spring 2020. The failure to do so would have killed tens of thousands of people who survived COVID. In addition, without lockdown, the NHS could simply not have survived and would have been overwhelmed. This would have been an even greater backlog of excess deaths for missed council appointments, etc. And that's the... I, I think mean, that's probably right, isn't it? I mean, it seems to me. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, we were locked down in good faith. I mean, you know, whatever you might say about it retrospectively at the time, it seemed like the only option really not just an option it seemed like the only sensible thing to do terrifying as it was on all sorts of levels and it's sort of interesting because we were chatting about this a bit earlier before just before we came on air that you know there's an argument oh well it was bad what they did with the schools you know maybe we could have kept the schools open but actually there were two things happening with schools one was if you put a load of children together every day they'll all spread it and they'll all take it home but also it, it was the closure of the schools was one of the big ways of communicating to the public this was serious Mm. Yeah, and once you start getting well, the schools could stay. Well, obviously the schools could stay. Well, actually, you know, and um, uh, it, you know, some businesses can stay open, and maybe actually these things can do. You know, suddenly you don't have a lockdown anymore. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it, it is. It is absolutely amazing just thinking about it. How I think we've forgotten how urgent and terrifying it felt at the time, and how dystopian. I remember that first Boris Johnson announcement. I was like, oh god, this is. I'm in a dystopian film now. But I think the way we remember lockdown is that it was basically a big annoyance. And yeah. we forget the kind of, for some reason, we're forgetting the emotions and remembering the fact that, you know, you had to queue outside a shop yeah. and that kind of stuff. And that's what some, for some reason, mentally stuck. Yeah. It's more, what I think about when more, I think about yeah, it. Yeah, more than the, uh, the emotion of it. And actually, the big complaint of Boris Johnson was he didn't lock down enough. Yeah, it's fascinating, enough. isn't it? Yeah. While we were going through it, that actually the complaint was, but, you know, why did we so well with three weeks ahead of Italy? So we've got to wait three weeks before we do anything. You know, the same thing happened in October, November uh, 2020, in, you know, in part as a result of, you know, questioning within government, probably from Rishi Sunak as well, that, that, that we weren't, you know, it was a bad idea. Yeah, it all just seems, seems oh, anyway, it feels like a bit of a last thrashing about by a man who's probably not going to win. Yeah. Although I still maintain the point that if he does win, it will be absolutely hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> it will be very, very funny. Um, where, how are you with languages, James? Um, I was going to try to answer that in French. Um, uh, non good, not particularly good. No, non good, non good. Uh, no, uh, non bien. Uh, well, no, not, no, not okay. Non, I'm going to give up. This is not going very well for me. Non bon, non bon, maybe is that right? potentially. I don't. India might know. India, you any good with languages? Um, yes, I'm all right with languages. So there's this, um, it turns out that uh, people never forget foreign language phrases years after leaving school. Even, this is a story today. Even those who learned French 50 years ago and have never used it since have similar recall to those who have just taken their exams. I just don't believe this story at all. I think it's completely bananas. Of course that's not true. I mean, maybe the odd phrase. Say you know. le complete banane. Say it's completely yes. ma- matters. Banane. Well, oh, no, no, and, it is banana, isn't it? Banana? Anan. Anan is banana. No, I pineapple. think it is banana, isn't it? Yeah, anan, yeah. yeah. Well, you've got perfect recall. Yeah. Uh, I went, went to France about three or four weeks ago for the first time in oh, four or five years, probably. All comes back. It, it? I think it does come back. I, when I go to France, I cannot stop trying to talk French to French people. <laughs> Much to the irritation of virtually everyone I ever try to engage in conversation. Do you go full on sort of stripey Breton top and onions around the whole neck? way? Yeah, yeah. I, buy, I buy French newspapers. Yeah, carrying. I imagine you've got a French book in your pocket. French newspaper, French book. Yeah. Not quite beret, but you know, if, if I can, um, <laughs> if I can sneak that past my girlfriend and she doesn't confiscate my attempts to wear a beret, then. Um, 
So they, I'm they, they, go this, for is, it. this is all a study, India. Participants of the University of Europe yeah, study were tested on the French half a century after last sitting exam. We found to perform at the same level as recent pupils. Yeah, India versus science. I mean, I think we've got to no, side with I science, haven't we? I, I totally She's got a bit wishy sooner. I don't, I don't trust <laughs> the science. <laughs> had I think experts. you'll find I said this at the time. The reason, the reason that it comes back is you're in situ. If you're in France, there's some sort of brain muscle memory that kicks in. I think that's true. And you might remember the odd phrase. But, you know, if you've just done a French A-level and your head is full of French and you can converse fluently and properly in French, obviously you have an advantage over somebody who studied a bit at school 50 years ago. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a given. You know, you need to use, it, it, it's like... I don't know. It's like being incredibly good at maths. I've picked a really bad example because I'm incredibly bad at maths and now I can't <laughs> think where my example is going to go. But it's like, you know, if you spend your entire day doing calculus, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's silly. I think I think the thing about languages is they lie dormant and you can you can kind of bring them back to life by immersing yourself in a particular culture surrounding that language. But sitting at home in your kitchen in Ealing, you you, you, you can't. It's, it's, it's silly. It's wrong. Scientists are wrong. <laughs> Scientists are They're completely wrong. Right, we sorted that out. Good. <laughs> Lovely. Uh, what about Starbucks? Uh, oh, we talked a little about this, but yesterday on Dish United Kingdom, it was nicer. So Stroud, the town of Stroud, uh, is up in arms about Starbucks coming to town. They're fighting back. Thousands of people have signed a petition. This feels like something that's right up your street, James. Yeah, good, good for them. I mean, well, do you know what? I like to think I'm an anti-Starbucks person, but come autumn and come a pumpkin spice latte... <laughs> I am exactly. at the front of the Starbucks queue for a pumpkin spice latte. So if I lived in Stroud and I was thinking it's raining, yeah. the nights are drawing in, you know, beginning to feel the smell of dead leaves in the air, my pumpkin spice latte senses will be tingling and I will feel your, like, yeah. Your anti-capitalist exactly, Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, what about you, India? I mean, I have to say, I don't really like their coffee, but I quite like their fra- frappuccinos. Yeah, like and frapper? their iced frappuccinos. Oh. Um, when I was a teenager... <laughs> My parents lived in Hampstead, Bijou, lovely Ooh, Hampstead, and a McDonald's. A McDonald's tried to come to Hampstead, and there was an absolute uproar because people were so appalled by the by the idea that their charming scenic high street would be polluted, you know, with the crassness of the Golden Arches. There was a McDonald's in Golders Green that you'd drive to as a treat. Anyway. Uh, and I remember thinking, but I really want a McDonald's. I, you know, I, <laughs> McDonald's. I mean, I don't want a McDonald's every day, but you know, a bit like James's pumpkin latte. You know, sometimes you just want a burger, and what's the problem anyway? In the end, they did make the McDonald's, and they made it look all aged, so it didn't have golden arches. <laughs> they kind of faked up. It was a kind of farrow and ball McDonald's. I don't know if it's still there, and I just think it's really snobby. I think it's really, you know, if people if they're Presumably Starbucks have done their research and think that there's a market. I mean, I personally prefer independent coffee shops, of course, but not everybody can afford independent coffee shops and artisan coffee. And if they want a Starbucks, they should have a Starbucks. Something that does make me sad is when you go on holiday. I'm going I'm going to Italy next week and I'm extremely excited, but You'll be trying all your Italian, I imagine. Oh God. It'll all come back, always all come back. Mar- yeah, Margarita Pizza. Uh, that's about it. <laughs> and you see... Always comes back to food, this, uh, this discussion. <laughs> go on, you go to Italy. Um, and the, I, when you go to the continent and they have all these beautiful independent cafes and they have a Starbucks and everybody local is in the Starbucks and it always spoils it for me because I'm like, this is not my vision of what things should be like in... Oh, well, I've got breaking news for you, India. From, mm. from 2013. 
McDonald's in Hampstead High Street to close after 21 years. <laughs> so wait, it lasted 21 years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it opened in night... So the fast food chain, which opened a strong opposition from residents led by the late Peggy J in 1992. That's right. She was amazing, Peggy J. Peter J's mother. There we are. What, Peter J, the, the um, yes. journalist? And... Yes, yes, who was later ambassador to Washington. Yes. Yes. There we are. He His was mother Times, was a... He was a Times... He was uh, a Times... Economic editor? Yeah, he was. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah it shut in uh, 2013. Uh, the spokesperson said they were sad that it was shut. It was not any decision. Uh, after so many years of successful, we decided this was the right opportunity as we received a good commercial offer to purchase the remainder of our lease. So they sold up and left. Mm-hmm. So there we are. I mean, you could argue that it was the thin end of the wedge and that giant sort of corporate yeah. people moved in afterwards, I suppose. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not so massively pro Starbucks. I think there should be one in every village. But I think if there is a call for it and the people of Stroud who aren't the vocal opponents quite fancy a Frappuccino on a muggy August day, then, you know, why not? Somebody's just been in touch to point out that Stroud already has a Costa. No, it's not the same. Not the same. Isn't it? I think no. Starbucks is just cooler than Costa, isn't it? I it's hate Starbucks thing. coffee, actually. I yeah, no, I do. It tastes like, it tastes like hot mud. That's sort of mm. the point, isn't it? <laughs> but I think, I think I read recently I was amazed at Until them. they sponsor the show, obviously, then it's absolutely <laughs> yeah, the delicious. Finest, <laughs> the finest stuff going. James Marriott and Indian Night, then, of course, you can read them both in the Times and the Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is my chat with Shabnam. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Shabnam Kardawan is Afghanistan's answer to Hugh Edwards. Every night she appeared on screens at 7 o'clock at 10 o'clock to read the news until one night in August last year when she choked on her script as she announced that Kabul was about to fall back into the hands of the Taliban and backwards by about quarter of a century. When she tried to go back to work a few days later and returned to the studios, 
She was told by armed Taliban fighters to go home, give up on her dreams of being a young, educated, working woman, or they would shoot her. When she vowed to speak out, they threatened her family. When she fled her homeland and came to Britain for her own safety, she spent 12 months off the air, silenced. But now, exactly a year after she was smuggled out of Kabul, she's chosen to speak out because silence, she says, is exactly what the Taliban wants, which is why I've sat down with her to hear her story. Chapnam is just 25 years old. Born in September 1996, she was three weeks old when the Taliban marched into the capital and established the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. She was five when the US-led invasion overturned that period of Taliban rule in December 2001. And she went on to be able to grow up in a country still war-ridden, but fairer to women than the previous generation could have imagined, being brought up with at least some opportunities makes what happened last year all the more cruel. Worse, perhaps, to have experienced freedom and equality and have it taken away than never to have tasted it before. So in our interview, Shabnam takes me back to what life was like before last summer. We had a peaceful and good life, like um, duty, work, life together with the family. Yeah. And describe you becoming a journalist as a young woman in Afghanistan. How exciting was that for you? How important was it for you to be? Why did you want to be a journalist? When I uh, saw the uh, ladies, uh, they present the news. That's so amazing for us. And I think with myself, oh, I try to become like this one day. But the other people in Afghanistan, the situation is not like that. They accept a lady to become a journalist. But my father say, I'm with you. I support you. Don't think about what the people say. You can do it. And before the Taliban came back, how did you feel? Did you feel free to report on whatever you wanted to? Did you feel like you were a TV newsreader like we would have in the UK or in America or something like that? Were you able to, to report on whatever you wanted? Yeah. We never think uh, the dark period of the Taliban come once again in Afghanistan. We never thinking about that. Just we read and we saw some films about the Taliban. When in August they come, we shocked. Well, most of Afghanistan had already fallen to Taliban control when, on August the 14th, 2021, staff at the television studios of RTA, that's the National Radio Television Afghanistan, speculated their 10 o'clock bulletin would be their last. Millions tuned in to see what was happening to their country. Now, Shabnam got emotional during a final bulletin. Her colleagues told her to relax. Our colleagues say, oh, this is our last night. We say, oh, no, don't say like this, because uh, tomorrow we will come back and we present the news. Uh, we say what's happened uh, for our people, for the world. And how does that feel when you go on 10 o'clock at night on the 14th of August? You're reading the news, and quite often, in, you know, I'm the same journalist, a lot of the time you're reporting about things which are happening to other people. Yeah. And actually, maybe the pandemic for a lot of journalists in the UK was the first time you suddenly realise you're reporting on a thing which is affecting everyone at the same time. What's going through your mind? You're trying to read the news as an impartial journalist, but knowing that the Taliban is just outsidable. Yeah, on that time, I'm so upset. Were you close to crying? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, But my colleagues say, please, relax. You are a presenter. But I say, I have feeling this is my country, this is my life. Um, I am human as well. After 10.30, when we leave our uh, office, we go to home. And when I wake up in 15th of August, everything is changed. Government is collapsed. 
the Taliban come. I never seen face to face like see the Taliban. They come to our office, the Taliban with the guns. Did you get up the following morning and go to the TV station? Did you try to go to work? Three day, we just waiting for them. Uh, what they want to do uh, with um, Kabul and with Afghanistan? What's their plan? The Taliban spokesman say. We will make such a political system in Afghanistan that the people of Afghanistan and the, even the region and the whole world. Uh, we will work with them. He tried to say, uh, I will explain everything. What's our plan? Uh, he said, just the system of the government is changed, but everything is uh, okay. He said like this for the world, for the people, and uh, for the Afghans. But uh, that's just uh, on paper. In, in action, they say no. Universities have to close. The women can't participate like political participation with us. They have to stay at home. Uh, yeah, it just wasn't true what they said. Well, three days later, Shabnam tried to go back to her office. When we go to office, the, uh, we have our the ID card with yeah. us, uh, everything. We uh, wear the full uh, burki because... You did wear that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We try to enter and pass the gate. They say, where are you going? We say, this is our ID card. We work here. They say, uh, no, this is Emirat. In Emirat, no females uh, journalists uh, and uh, employees can uh, work with us together. You have to leave here. After a long uh, argument uh, about us, they say, you have to leave here. If you didn't leave here, I will shoot you. I say, yes, I am an Afghan girl. You kill like me, thousand girls. I am one of them. But I never stay at home and keep silent because this is my right. I learned in these 20 years to do the job and everything. My father security come with me and when he saw this situation and he come and hold my hand, please, I don't want your, your study, your work, your duty, everything. Just I want you, uh, you survive. So she went home, but Shaddam remained angry. So she pulled on her grey suit jacket, wrapped a mustard orange hijab around her head, clipped on her journalist's ID card to a lapel as she'd always done. But instead of broadcasting on TV, she posted a video online to try to get her message out, which went viral, putting her in even more danger. If I keep silent, who will give back our job, our university, everything? I introduce myself. My name is Shabnam Dawran. I work five years with different media in Afghanistan. Uh, now the regime has changed, the Taliban come, United Nations and every country hear me, please help us. After three, four days, my video is viral. I'm the first girl in Afghanistan after the coming of the Taliban. I uh, stand against them. Yeah. And uh, my video... That's dangerous. Yeah. What, I mean, did you... What were you think? How were you feeling at the time? Because you've gone from being... A young woman in a, you know, in a reformed Afghanistan, you're able to go to work, wear what you want to do, go to study, work, um, and then suddenly you're having to put on the burqa, been told you can't work, and if you do, they'll shoot you. How are you feeling? Are you frightened, angry? We born in war. We grew up in the war, and still Afghanistan in the war. 
our feeling, our thinking um, is so different from uh, the uh, rural girls. We saw the people and the Taliban killed them in front of um, as we see the blood, uh, the people, every everything we saw that. That's uh, our daily experience. Uh, yeah, yeah, experience. Yeah. I try to be strong yeah. because... Do you think you were just beyond being scared you've yeah. spent your whole no. you can't go through your whole life being scared yeah yeah i never accept that i can uh, um, i have to stay at home because of just i eat and sleep no this is not life every time my father say you have to be strong my daughter you have to be strong in every situation because of that i never have uh, uh, scared if the taliban come and kill me life without uh, school without university without work Without peace, that's uh, like uh, a person die. That's not uh, just eating and sleeping is not life. But certainly the fame that Shadram enjoyed as a newsreader on Afghan television uh, meant that there was an extra price on her head. The Taliban were after her. So when Shabnam was turned away from her TV studios by armed militias, she posted an angry video online which went viral. She went into hiding. Family members were threatened and neighbours bribed by thugs looking for any information on her whereabouts. So a plot was hatched to get her out of the country. But you'll remember that in the summer of 2021, thousands of Afghans were already flocking to Kabul airport. It was exactly a year ago today that Shabnam was smuggled out of Kabul on a plane via a back door into Kabul International Airport before she finally made her way to Britain. With her were her 21-year-old sister, Mina, and her now 15-year-old brother, Hematula. She told me why she made that decision to leave her homeland with her siblings. I try to leave Afghanistan for our uh, good future, a good future for my brother and uh, my sister. They're younger, and uh, if uh, we stay in Afghanistan, their future is dark because no education, no school, no university, no right of the work. It's not uh, a good life, and no one can uh, have a bright future with like this situation. Because of that, uh, I decide to, I have to try this way and leave the country, leave the mother, father, and the siblings, everything, and go ahead for a bright future. In the UK? Yeah. And how did it feel leaving your family behind? I never uh, think about this. Uh, one day I will leave my uh, father and mother. I imagine that if I leave Afghanistan, I don't have any chance to see them once again, to hug them. But uh, I say you have to do this for your bright future and the bright future of your brother. I say for myself, Shabnam, you have to do this one. Every day, uh, every night, uh, when I go to my bed, I, my parents, I thinking about them, what's going on. Sometimes uh, when I uh, wake up and uh, um, suddenly I want to check my phone, uh, what's happened with my parents because they are still in Afghanistan and they're in high uh, treat with the Taliban. And uh, I check my phone, oh, I talk with them, everything is okay, where is my father? Um, he say yes, I'm fine, and everything is okay. I don't worry about us. After that, I start my day. But she was told by the Taliban to keep quiet. In exchange, her parents would not be threatened or killed. But her father was beaten up anyway, breaking almost every bone in his body in a bloody assault that left him in hospital. It also crucially left him unable to work and provide for his family. 
So Shabnam has decided to speak out and work in defiance of Taliban orders so that she can send money to the family she's not seen for over a year. If she doesn't, her family could die from starvation. Because if I keep silent myself, they day by day, they become strong. They control every media in Afghanistan and they remove the, and eliminate the girls, the women, the female journalists from the uh, media. And they can't say anything because if they say anything, they say, we will kill you. They can't say anything because of that. I have the facilities to say something about them. How do you feel about Britain and America that having gone into Afghanistan more, more than 20 years ago, ended the, the rule of the Taliban, actually changed the, you know, the lives of people like you, yeah. and then left so dramatically a year ago. And sort of, it doesn't really even get talked about now. That it, we don't have any responsibility to Afghanistan. You know, we were there for a bit and then we've left and you have to sort of sort yourself out. What would you say to sort of the British government? It's shameful for America. They leave Afghanistan on like that situation. And they, and they sign that with the Taliban, you can go to Afghanistan. Without this, they share this issue with our president. In a so dangerous situation, they leave Afghanistan alone. And it's so shameful. It's uh, like a big country like America, and they do like this. Uh, that's so shameful. I want to say I'm so happy from the British government. They uh, give me once again chance of the living, a chance of the seeing, chance of the studying. Thank you so much for them. Uh, I'm happy. Now I uh, have every facilities in my life that's uh, from helping of them. And because you've been able to come here and settle. and Yeah, yeah. yeah. With my sister and brother, we have a so restful life now here. And uh, I say, please help the other women. They are still in Afghanistan. They are still in bad situation. And they can't say anything. They can't do anything. Please, you have to help the Afghan women. Shabnam with a direct appeal there to, to the British and American governments on about their response to what happened in Afghanistan a year ago. We all remember the Foreign Affairs Select Committee uh, released a report into the British evacuation, criticising the evasive and often deliberately misleading answers from the Foreign Office on their handling of the conflict. The Foreign Office responded to the report, saying there were fundamental lessons to learn from the withdrawal. And it's determined to raise standards in preparing for and responding to uh, future crises. The government announced a new scheme last year, the Afghanistan Citizens Resettlement Scheme, to help 20,000 Afghan nationals who are at risk due to the current crisis. This morning we've had some new data actually from the Home Office about the number of Afghans who have resettled in the UK since April last year. It shows that 11,300 people from Afghanistan have been granted indefinite leave to remain and 21,500 British nationals and Afghans have been brought to safety prior to, during and following the the evacuation in 2021. This morning the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, said that their work to help Afghanistan's Afghans reset in the UK has not stopped. She said there are still weekly flights. Our resettlement schemes remain open and we'll be welcoming thousands more people to our country. We're also doing everything possible to move families into homes and I urge landlords and local authorities to come forward with suitable accommodation. When Shabnam boarded the plane last year, it was the first time she'd left Afghanistan in her life. She told me how life in Britain took some getting used to. When I come here... I saw the big building, the the good uh, um, streets, uh, the lighting, the people, the girls. They can every time uh, walk in everywhere, uh, go to school, and uh, the buses, everything, the trains, 
that's so um, amazing for us. And I say, oh, I'm so sorry for my country, for my people, how the big difference between their life here, life and in Afghanistan. They can go to school, go to universities, uh, work uh, on that work they want. But in Afghanistan, just they say, you have to do this one, you have to do this one, you have to. It's not your right for the girls, especially for the girls, they say. Your parents uh, choose this one for you. But here for the girls, um, uh, so peaceful and enjoyful life. They would be happy because they have... Uh, uh, it's a good point. Like this. I, I should tell my daughters. They should be happy yeah. about me yeah. telling them what to do. Um, is there anything you don't like? Is there anything I don't, or not really understood? I don't know whether it's the way that British people behave or the food or the music. Is there anything that you found weird? In this one year, when I face to British people, uh, they are so kind, they are so respectful, and they are so good people. And I want to say about my friend Ash Alexander, he is a kind person. I never seen like this uh, a person. He before. helped you. He's standing over there. He, yeah. hel- he helped you. Yeah. Get he, out of Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. When I was in Afghanistan. My English is so weak, just I say hi, hello, like this. But now uh, I come here with my English, with my uh, settling, uh, with uh, my trip, with everything he helped us. And just the weather, about the weather, when we come, every day, every day, cloudy, cloudy, cloudy. Oh, where is the sun? <laughs> yeah, uh, we've had a bit of sun in the last few weeks, but don't worry, winter's coming. Yes. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely be back to the cup. What about food? Have you been trying British food? Uh, when was uh, we uh, in, in quarantine in a hotel when we first came yeah. on the that's uh, period of the corona yeah. uh, COVID uh, and 21 day we we three me my sister and my brother uh, in one room and they bring the food for us in Afghanistan the people say more uh, food and here just one burger one sandwich <laughs> that's enough for them but in Afghanistan they like one plate yeah, yeah they eat with a uh, big uh, bread they eat that but here just one sandwich uh, with one uh, coffee that's enough for them oh <laughs> we, we are hungry please bring more there's not, food. There's not enough food you <laughs> yeah. don't mind what it is you just yeah. want more of it in six months uh, that's not enough for us after that, uh, slowly, slowly. You've got used to it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now it... we are like British people, just eat. Fish and chips. Fish and chips. Yeah, Do you like chips. fish and chips? Yeah, chips. Just chips, chips. not the yeah. fish. Yeah. Not the fish. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit cloudy and there's a lot of chips. Well, you know, life in life in the UK isn't so bad after all, but um, Shabnam was clear that she just doesn't know when she's going to get to see or even hug her family again. I'm still worried about them. I don't know, but... Uh... I pray for this uh, one time more I can hug my mother. She's extraordinary. Shadnam Khan Dwan there, the Afghan newsreader, forced to flee her home country after being threatened by the Taliban. She's now living in the UK. Ash, who she was talking about there, uh, Ash Alexander, who's uh, been helping her, helped to get to the UK. Really appreciate his help in being able to tell her story as well. We wish you all the best. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.